Hi everyone, welcome back to the latest episode of the Irish Balance podcast. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you're very welcome back for a brand new episode. And if you are new to the podcast, then I'll just do a quick introduction. So my name's Kira Kelly. I'm an Irish girl and qualified medical doctor specializing in public health medicine. And I'm really passionate about prevention in medicine. I think it's something that probably doesn't get enough airtime. And I try to use my blog, the Irish Balance and my Instagram to show you guys how we can try to empower ourselves with prevention to live happy, healthy lifestyles full of balance. My guest today is a fellow doctor, Dr. Laura Lenehan, a GP from Galway and at Dr. Laura GP on Instagram. Hopefully some of you are following Laura by now and if you're not, you better get on it. Welcome to the podcast, Laura. Thank you very much, Kira, and thank you for having me. Um, so I am a GP reg like Kira. I'm training. I am due to finish up in April next year and I live in Galway also. I'm a mum of two little girls, Harper and Indy, and I have baby number three coming in May. And like Kira, I am a big believer, I suppose, in health promotion and education and set up my Instagram, Dr. Laura GP, this year for the same kind of reason. I think it's great to empower patients to understand more about their health and about the basic things that, that can happen to us um, so that they can deal with it a bit better and know how and when to ask for help. That sounds fantastic. I think it's the, the word empower, I think is just something we don't use enough. It's really, really important. And we know 100%. like Insta like social media, we were speaking before we started recording and social media can be so frustrating sometimes, but it is a really powerful tool. We know people access so much health information online. And I think it's great that there are some Irish doctors out there trying to put some evidence-based uh, quality information out there. And I've really enjoyed following your page. Can you tell us a bit about um, your kind of backstory of how you came to be a doctor and why you went into medicine in the first place? Yeah, so I suppose I kind of came to medicine in a very um, roundabout route and I came late in life to medicine. So after I did the Leaving Cert, I initially did a degree in commerce and French and um, eventually did a master's in fashion marketing in Glasgow. And I moved oh, to wow. London then and, and yeah, so I have a very different background. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd done I'd done a degree and a couple of diplomas, then a master's and worked in fashion in London for Net Porte. And I'm a real home bird. So I, I struggled, I must admit, in London. It was back in 2004, five and six when I was there. And, and so there weren't a huge amount of Irish people there. There was no one there from, from Galway when I was there. Mm. So I came home a lot and I decided to move home. And when I moved home, the recession was just hitting. So all of my plans kind of went out the window a bit and I didn't really know what to do and I was working away in Galway and, and trying to decide where to go with my life and a friend of my father's actually told him about postgraduate medicine and said wouldn't that be great for Laura so I remember we were sitting in Milano's over dinner one evening and my dad was trying to convince me to do medicine and my mum was trying to convince me to do teaching she's now mm. a retired teacher and um you know, I suppose given my background in commerce and my dad used to have his own business, I, I always thought that I wanted to have my own business. And I thought if I do medicine, I could be a GP and um, have my own business and be my own boss and do it that way. And, you know, it'd be interesting. But I wasn't yeah. really sure that I was cut out for it. Like I certainly did not get 600 points in my leaving search. I, I got, I don't know, 500 and something. But, you know, medicine wasn't, I wouldn't have been that studious, I suppose, at, at leaving certain times. So, I said, right, I'll give it a go. You had to do the GAMSAT to get into medicine, into postgraduate medicine to be able to do it in four years. So this mm. was Christmas. The GAMSAT exam was in March. I quit my job and I said I'd study for three months because I didn't really, you know, it's a chemistry, physics, 
biology uh, paper and then uh, uh, an English, two English papers. So I oh would my gosh, give it a, a go. Lot to it. There's a lot to it. Yeah, it's like yeah. an eight hour exam over the course of one day. I think I got it ages ago, so I don't really remember. But yeah. I said I'd give it a go. And if I got it, I would do it. And so I did really well, actually, then in the GAMSAT and started in Limerick that um, September. So I suppose I was never one of those ones that always wanted to do medicine. Um, mm. My postgrad course was full of people like that, full of girls um, and guys, you know, that hadn't gotten it first time around and then that went and did science and had either intended on planning to go to the UK or just chosen something else kind of um, medically uh, um, themed, you know. Um, yeah. So it was interesting. I came in with a fashion background and I was like, I mean, I stood out like a sore thumb, you know, they they still talk about me. Someone is, is in Limerick, one of my followers, and they yeah. still talk about me now um, about because I was the second year and they always talk about the girl that had had a, a fashion background, you know, because it, it, it was obviously <laughs> unusual. But look, it, yeah. I found my face. I, I loved it. Now, I struggled a lot in um, in med school. I, I found it. It was extremely intense. Um, yeah. The UL course is very much. I like to call it teach yourself medicine because it's it's yeah. problem based learning. We didn't have any didactic lectures, which is what I needed. I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have sat through lectures, um, mm. but I I did struggle. I I really found my place when it came to the clinical attachments because I just love that side of it. Um, and then in intern year when I was out in like the big bad world and you know I could do things for myself. That's when I find found that I really clicked in medicine, dealing with patients because yeah. I I love that side of it. I think that's so interesting. There's so many things you said there that I want to just circle back on for a second. Um, you yeah. probably came into the GAMSAT around the time that I was doing my HPAT, I would say, because I was the first okay, year yeah. of the HPAT. Yes, yeah. So that I did the GAMSAT in... Um, I think it was 2009 I did it. So I would have been 2008. So I started in 2008. Yeah. yeah, so the HPAT was the year after. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's a way of weeding out... <laughs> Who would apparently, who apparently, would, weeding apparent, out. Apparent, apparently, apparently, 100%. I, like, I, I'm not sure that it does that. I don't know that. Like, I, I did very well in the GAMSAT, but I don't know that that necessarily means that I'm a good doctor, you know. Um, mm. But it, it, I suppose what they're trying to do with it is looking at a, a more broad kind of picture rather than focusing in solely on someone who can do extremely well in a science-based exam. They want you to have... Mm what do they call it is it lateral thinking or um, yeah you know yeah so um it's an interesting way in um, yeah it is I mean the HPAT so I did the HPAT the first sorry it's a bit of a digression now but I think some people I follow I get so many questions about how I got into medicine and the different paths I to medicine too. I think Camp it's worth digressing a, a list yes yeah 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 but I did the HPAT the first time and with my points and the HPAT I missed uh I missed it by two which was a hard pill to swallow, but I did dietetics for a year and really loved that. Yes. And it was a tough call, you know, will I do it again? And kind of like you, I said, fine, I'll do it again. I'll take three months and study while doing my um, first year of dietetics and I'll keep the options open either way. And I was able to get into Trinity by by two points, if that makes sense. I was just over. Yes, over. But it's interesting. I think that the exam, it's another, it's for another day to, to you know, say, personal opinions on it but I do think the yeah. there is some that will just go through the HPAT naturally and do very well and there's others and I think the majority who can study for it and improve scores the way I did so I, I do think it questions like some of the doctors I've met um 
are, are you know, I suppose it's, it's not, I don't think it's solely based on academics. I think academics will get you so far through the course, but the patient to patient interaction, some of that is just learned through experience and communication skills, you know, it really can't yeah. be taught. I don't know. But I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, but I don't know that the HPAT really, well, I don't know much about the HPAT or the GAM, but the GAM side, I don't know that it, because it's all about communication, isn't it? Being, being a mm. good doctor is all about communication. 100%. I know that's my that's what I do well. I, I do that very mm. well. I, I and I don't mean to tout my own, you know, but I I, I talk to patients well. I, I speak on a really simple level. I explain things in mm. you know, a, a easy to understand way, and I and I love interacting with patients, and that's yeah. why I did well in my clinical years, and and since I've since I've come out, and I don't know how the GAMSAT or, or the, the HPAT for that matter can can you know, pick up a, a person that's good at that. But then exactly. in saying that also, I think there are so many people in medicine that just, um, you know, should possibly not be in medicine and should stick to the pathology side of things because they can't interact, you know, yeah. with patients. And the patient patients manner is very hard. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you either have it or don't, you know, and yeah. we learn, we learn communication skills you know, and in GP, that's a huge part. So we mm. do, you know, there's a four-year training program for GP and we have teaching every Wednesday. So I, I have a half day off when I'm in, when we're in the hospital-based programs. And when we're in GP, we have a full day of teaching every Wednesday. And communication skills is a massive component of that to mm. help us. I mean, and that's mainly more around your history taking and explaining, but learning things like chunking and checking and making sure a patient understands. But you can only do that if, the basics are there if you're good at interacting with patients yeah absolutely so it's, it's a, a tough call it is it is I totally agree with you and you say you chose general practice there was kind of two elements to it I think it was sort of having your own being your own boss maybe being a master of your own time and the patient interaction side of it that sounds kind of like the main reason yeah or, absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. 100% so I went into postgraduate medicine with a view to doing GP that was it. It was only going to be the only thing for me, really, because I went in at 26. So I was coming out at 30. By the time I did my intern year, I'd be 31. And as you know, most of the other higher specialist training schemes involve you having to move around the country. Yes. So um, by choosing GP, I knew I could stay in Galway um, mm -hmm. for the four years pretty much. I was extremely lucky and I didn't have to move out of Galway. And at that stage in my life, my now husband and then boyfriend was moving over from the UK. We wanted kids. We wanted mm. um, to buy a house and, and make a life to ourselves. So that was one aspect of it. And then the GP, uh, having your own business side was a huge aspect for me. And yeah. it's interesting because actually over the past few years, since I've had kids, a lot of that has changed. So now I wouldn't dare have my own full-time GP practice because really it's just not as it's not lucrative at all and not that it's all about lucrativeness but it's not it's too much work with kids so I'm I'm trying to build myself a different path now with yeah. the Instagram and the the dermatology and the women's health and, and kind of specializing down that side but it, it's funny how you have an idea set in your head you know I was going to take over a medical card list or whatever in Salt Hill and set mm -hmm. up my own GP practice and work in that. that that's gone for me now to a certain extent. Um, but I, I will do something similar and, and add in a few other bits. But then, yeah, the other side of it is that I love um, the patient interaction. Yeah. You know, I love how much time we get to to spend with patients. And I know you want to talk about that. Um, but I love that, you know, I suppose you 
you know, a GP, first of all, has a, a certain amount of standing in the community, which I think is lovely. Everyone knows them and they know everyone. So they know, you know, say my mother and my grandmother, and now they know my children. So they're treating yeah. four generations of us all at the same time. Mm. I don't think any other speciality gets that in medicine. And I think it's a really nice thing to be a part of someone's whole family lives like that. I, I really enjoy that. Definitely. I think it's it's a... Um... When people have a really good connection with their GP, I think it really is such a, a valuable part of, of looking after Absolutely. yourself. Like, you know, it's yeah. really important. Like in my family, we all go to the same GP um, in my hometown in Dublin and like we trust him so much, you know, and it really makes such yeah. a difference. And trust is like it's such a huge part of the doctor patient relationship, you know, mm. because and we spoke about this, I suppose, beforehand, people coming in with these, you know, the, the worried well. Um, yeah. And you don't really get that when you have trust in your GP, or at least you come in and your GP can really reassure you that there yeah. is nothing wrong versus, you know, I see patients now who don't know me from Adam and yeah. really don't care what I have to say and just want A, B, C, D. And like, I, I'm thinking of a particular patient that I shouldn't be thinking of, but, you know, and yeah. she just they were just demanding yeah. everything and wouldn't listen to reason, wouldn't listen to you know what I was trying to explain to them. because they don't know me and that's one of the issues as a reg of course you you know you're you're moving, you're moving around and so you don't get to know patients yeah yeah and would that be do you think what you find the most challenging about it um in terms of I suppose being able to establish uh, or be a point of trust but you have to move around so much and you have to see such a volume of people um or absolutely what do you yeah yeah so as again as a reg at the minute one of the most challenging things for me is the volume of patients I see on a day-to-day -day basis. In all of the practices that, I, that I've been in, there are senior partners, you know, the people that own the practice, and they have their set of patients who come to them all the time. And they don't just come to them with the acute head cold or sore throat. They come to them with all of their issues. Yeah. And it takes time, again, to build up the trust that someone will come to you for those. So as a reg, when you're starting somewhere, often they won't come to you and they'll request to go to see someone else. So then you're left with seeing a lot of the acute things. So especially at the minute, I must admit, I, I and we, we were talking about this beforehand, I, I struggle with the volume of patients I'm seeing that are the worried well, you know, that have had a cough for yeah. a week and just don't realize that that's normal. And, and I think that's where patient education becomes key or, you know, and I have no yeah. issue seeing them and examining them and explaining to them. And then hopefully by educating them in the appointment that they won't come back the next time unless they're really worried or with signs to look out for. Yeah. Um, but I, like then, such, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And that, you know, and even if I see a, a well baby, say, for example, my last thing will be we do what we call safety netting. So mm. as they're leaving, I will say to mum, OK, so baby is well at the minute. They don't need an antibiotic. Um, but these are the things to look out for. So make sure you, you know, you're looking at their breathing. If their breathing changes in any way, you know, you need to come in and get seen again. Or if they're temperatures stop to come down stop coming down with the calpol then we get a little bit more worried or if yeah. they're really drowsy and they're just not waking up you know so educating people as to what you know to look out for and what to be worried about is is um i suppose an important part of the day but it, it makes the challenging part a bit more interesting if that makes yeah. sense yeah i think it's very clear from your instagram that that's that some of your content has been inspired by those common 100%. queries that have come in you know which I think is brilliant some of the posts you share yeah. 
And as we were chatting about before we started recording, you know, you were saying sometimes that what I feel like what I share is basic. And I, I do feel the same about my own content. But the basics yeah. are, are what we really need to have nailed in to people's mindset. They really like I uh, the amount of messages I get. Yeah. When I just do the most basic stuff. And because you don't know it, like nobody teaches you. And especially for me, it's a lot. A lot of it is about kids stuff. So I, I we were talking about it and I did RSV bronchiolitis in kids last week, which I see so much of. Yeah. But parents don't know what to look out for. And one of my amazing followers, because I have the most amazing followers, um, sent me in a video of her little one really struggling to breathe. And she allowed me to share that. So the amount of other people that then um, saw that, recognized that their children were unwell and actually got their kids checked out because of that and ended up in hospital. You know, it's a huge thing or or just the basics of how to give Calpol and Nurofen and that it should be weight based and it should, it should be every four to six hours, four hours. You know, yeah, the messages are just insane. I, I just, it makes it, because we obviously talked about Instagram is, you know, um, a love-hate love, 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 relationship, 100%. A love-hate yeah. relationship. But waking up to those messages from yeah. mums in particular, I see, um, you know, saying, I have all your story highlights, Jane, saved. You know what? My little one was really sick last night, but we did exactly what you said in your highlights. And they're so much better this morning. And I don't need to go to the GP. And it's just fantastic. You know, that, that makes it all worthwhile. Or, or even if it's just skincare. Like, because obviously I, I spoke about that. I talk about skincare a lot. Mm. You know, people sending me in pictures or that their skin has really changed since they've started doing all the tips that I gave them. I mean, that's just, it's great to see that. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, yeah. as you said, little things like that can just make it so worthwhile. Like I suffer with them um, or just in the last couple of years have suffered with chill blains during the winter. And I yes, hadn't yeah. I don't talk about my own health a lot or really at all on my own social media, because I suppose it's not what the platform is for. But I did yes. decide to speak about chill blains because I personally just felt I knew so little about them bar the basics when I got them. So I thought I'll do a post. And it was just really wonderful to hear or get messages from people saying I had no idea what these were and now I understand and I may or may not go to my GP but I know to do the basics and to like it's safe and just wear gloves you know that kind of way and yeah, yeah making a difference or if I post about vaccinations and you're able to you know hear from someone that they went to their GP and asked about it and got their Definitely. missed dose you know I think that's yeah. really important and you have a very engaged following it's very clear from following yeah, you that yeah, people yeah, are I really do yeah it's um they're very engaged. They really love learning. Uh, the, you know, again, you know, I, I like I think myself sometimes I'm like, why? What am I doing? What am I talking about this for? But people love it. You know, and they're like, oh, you're the first person I check. And, you know, that's great to hear. And to know that you're helping someone um, yeah. is just a, it, it's a real because. I guess for me and GP, sometimes they don't always want to listen and they're just thinking, why am I seeing the partner sometimes or who's this young yeah. one, you know? Yeah. And so to to have a, a group of people that really do want to learn from you is um, amazing. And and they feel so empowered, you know, and yeah. there's that word again that we love, you know, they do, they feel yeah. so empowered. So it's, it's an amazing feeling. Laura, I better bring us on to some of the topics that yes. we plan to talk about. <laughs> but yeah. I think this was worth ta- chatting about because it is... Um, you know, it's important. Um, but what we're going to start with is, I suppose, what we're going to go through, I suppose, in this episode um, for the listeners is some common health topics that present in GP, which I'm asked about a lot, but I'm obviously not working as GP. I'm working in public health medicine, which for the most part is not clinical. And I think it's really important yes. that people are aware of that. Like when I get messages about fertility or pregnancy, like while 
there's elements probably less out and really not at all with fertility. I don't really answer any questions in relation to that. Like there's some things I can answer um, in a broad sense with a post. I never would do individual advice online, obviously, yes. but I'm not seeing these things day to day. And I think it's really important to speak to someone who is and who's, you know, kind of well versed in them. Um, so we're going to start with pregnancy, um, specifically talking about nutrition and pregnancy. And my first question really is how important, I mean, it's probably a bit of a rhetorical question, but how important is nutrition for pregnancy? I suppose, yeah, and the first thing that I thought was, well, nutrition is obviously so important in all facets of our life. Mm. Um, but I think a lot of us as want to be mums um, worry a little bit more about nutrition and what we can do to give our the, the little bub that we want to bring into the world the best start in life. And so a lot of people go out and spend a lot of money on expensive um, vitamins, you know, the Pregnacares and the mm. other brands are available, but whatever they are, and, and they think that this is what they're doing. But actually, you know, and I'm not a nutritionist, I don't know a huge amount about it or diet, you've done dietetics, so I suppose you'd be better versed to discuss the particulars of it. But if, if we're, if you have a good, healthy diet, you're getting everything that you need from your diet in a, from a pre-pregnancy or trying for, for a baby point of view. The only two things that I discuss with my patients, the advice that I give and that I talk about Instagram a lot are obviously your folic acid mm. and vitamin D. So folic acid, again, and I'm sure you give out the same advice. The advice that I give to everyone, which is pretty much every single one of my followers, if you are of childbearing age and whether you are on contraception or not, you should be on folic acid. And the reason for that is because 50%, 50% of pregnancies are unplanned. 50%? 50% of pregnancies are unplanned. Isn't that insane? That's mad. I did not know it was that high. 50% of pregnancies are unplanned. So if you think about it, you don't find out until, like, if you're not trying to get pregnant and you miss your period and you're kind of like, oh, what's that about? You know, and you're not really sure. Yeah. So sometimes people don't come into us until six or eight weeks pregnant. And mm. it's those first 12 weeks that are so hugely important for folic acid and for reducing the risk of neural tube defects. So my, my big thing with nutrition, the pre-pregnancy thing especially, is folic acid. Mm. Everyone, every single person over the age of well, 18 or once you start having sex should be on folic acid, 400 micrograms once a day. And there's no excuse really either because you can pick it up in Aldi for like 70 cent, I think, or 35 cent. It's cheap as chips and mm. it might just save, you know, your baby from developing a neural tube defect. The other thing that I talk about is in certain cases, they need a higher uh, prescribed dosing of folic acid. So if they're overweight, a BMI over 25, which to be honest, isn't that big. Um, if they have diabetes, if they have a family history of um, neural tube defects on either the mum or dad's side, and if they're on anti-epileptics, um, missing one I can't remember all of those people should be on a five milligram dose of folic acid so that needs to be prescribed by your GP and is available on the the medical card so okay. to me that's the most important thing that anyone can do that's trying to get pregnant go for your pregnant cares and anything else but that that's the most important and the other supplement that I talk about is um vitamin d you know vitamin d I suppose 10 years ago, was it 10 years ago? It could be 20 years ago, it was touted as this miracle vitamin, um, fat-soluble vitamin that will do X, Y, and Z for X, Y, and Z. You know, will reduce your incidence of cancer and reduce your risk of mm. neurological conditions. And the, the research is obviously 
still coming out, but um, there is research that suggests that in women of childbearing age or pregnant women that your vitamin D um, levels can have a significant effect on baby. So the, the more the better. And pretty much in Ireland, all of us are deficient, certainly during the winter months from October to March, when the sunlight just isn't strong enough in the sky to make it. Um, and, and the more we wear SPF now, the less mm. vitamin D we're making. So my other um, caveat for pregnant women is to go on vitamin D. Uh, apart from that, I think just having a, a healthy, balanced diet is the most important thing. And you mentioned there about Aldi and supplements, but there that was you kind of um, preempted my next question. But would there be like when you're speaking to patients, places that you would say to get it from? I think that's something that people often wonder. You know, is the one that yeah. I get in Tesco or Boots the same as the one that's being maybe? touted to me in the health food shop you know yeah I, I look as far as i'm aware as long as it contains 400 micrograms of folic acid for example there's absolutely yeah. no difference like i get asked what vitamins i take regularly and, and i do i buy vitamins because sometimes i find especially in pregnancy my diet can be um probably not as good as it should be if i'm really tired or full-time working two kids i don't always make fresh food every day you know um, yeah. so I do take vitamins um, every day when I well not every day because I don't remember them but I use the Boots <laughs> brand ones you yeah. know I, Boots brand all the time because they're cheaper they're three for two if you pick those up versus the other branded ones that cost four or five times the price and you look at the ingredients on the back they're all the same you know yeah. they're the exact same pretty much so as long as it has your folic acid in 400 micrograms and, and a decent amount of vitamin D um you know which is what 3,000 units I take every two days of vitamin D okay units um then I think it's sufficient now I take my vitamin D in a in a spray form but I don't think there is any need to spend a huge amount of money at them on them no yeah vitamin D I that the one that's what I'm taking during the during the winter months when there's very yes. little sunshine as you said um yeah. and I just got mine in boots 10 micrograms um you know it's, it's fine um it, that well that's know. perfect is it a tablet i take the spray tablets yeah really yeah so i take a spray that costs 750 interesting three thousand micrograms yeah and it will last me so it's supposed to be a daily dose but it i don't need to take that much daily i can take it every two days and there's 90 sprays so it'll last me for the whole six months that i need to take my vitamin d for 750 it's so affordable and it, just i'm going to go off on a tangent now but just yeah because of it costs a lot like if you have a medical card say we will prescribe you desinin 800 units or 4000 units for your vitamin d and they cost 10 euro or 20 euro a month they cost the taxpayer payer the medical card holder pays obviously 250 per item or up to a max of 15 euro i think it is so okay. i really am trying to convince my medical card patients to just go out and buy the 750 euro um mm. Uh, spray instead of the prescription form which isn't any better you know mm. and when you uh, said 3,000 there 3,000 units is it international units yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I could be I wrong you. on that dosing now Kira off the top of my what's 10 micrograms is uh oh, I, need, I oh, actually yeah, only, only ever read the yeah. microgram <laughs> that's okay I think it's equivalent it's the daily dose anyway or the yeah it's it's uh it's an adequate dose basically yeah, the time micrograms, sorry, yeah, 400 units. In my head, I thought I had, I had a four in my head. 400 units. Yes. If it so ten, yeah. yeah, so it's way over. So 3,000, so I'm taking, so I think 10 micrograms is what they don't, so in Ireland, there's no, as you, I'm sure you're aware, there's no guidelines. Um, yeah. So we base it on the UK or the US. So 
3,000 international units is way above what you need, but it's still within a safe, a safe profile. You know, you're not going to get vitamin D toxicity or anything like it. Yeah. So yeah, so I'm taking well over what you would be taking now, because I, I, of course, I don't remember to take it every second day. So um, yeah, it's it's a good amount to take, I think. And if people, I suppose what I have found particularly useful as a medic is the NHS uh, website on vitamin D is very useful Absolutely. and breaks down Excellent. the guidelines. Just if people do want to have a little bit more reading on that, because as we know, when you Google something, it's not always the most evidence-based thing that comes up first. <laughs> yeah. The um, NHS website is actually excellent for fantastic. the majority of top, well, all the topics. And I I would look at that a lot for real simple explanations of things for patients. Mm. You know, I, I think it's an excellent tool to have. And the HSE have basically just copied it. But I find the NHS um, comes up top of the Google research, Google uh, search results. It's, it's a good one. Yeah, it's really good. Um, I suppose I should have mentioned when I, you know, when we dove into pregnancy, what I was trying to focus on in, in chatting to you about this topic is really lifestyle aspects with pregnancy. Um, so yeah. we've touched on nutrition and a little bit about a supplementation. Um, now, we've all heard about alcohol during pregnancy and how it's a no-no. And can we dive into that a little bit? And maybe could you tell us why if that's important? Yeah, so I guess, I don't know if it was all over Instagram and the news there recently, was it the fetal alcohol syndrome day? Um Oh, that was recently, yeah. September, October Mm. time. And so it was all over, you know, don't drink any alcohol. No, no, no. And I suppose the reason for that is that they don't know, you know, no one's doing any tests on any pregnant women and fetuses anytime soon, obviously. And so we don't know at what level alcohol becomes dangerous. And that's why they say absolutely no alcohol. In Ireland specifically, um, there's obviously a big binge drinking culture. There is. Yeah. And so that's what they really don't want to happen. So the advice is, you know, if you're trying to get pregnant or if you are pregnant, you shouldn't be drinking at all because they don't want you binge drinking and mm. potentially affecting the, the fetus. I spoke about this on my Instagram at the time and because I heard other people talking about it and they were, you know, very. um the right word I can't think of the right word now but they're very much no alcohol the advice I'm going to give to my patients is if you're trying to get pregnant you're pregnant no alcohol and I think that I agree with it okay but I think it puts an awful lot of pressure on us as mums or want to be mums you know Mm. all we want to do is the best for ourselves and our baby but a lot of people again with the 50 percent of of unplanned or of pregnancies are unplanned a lot of people don't realize that they're pregnant in those first few weeks and i i I drink myself included on the first pregnancy you know two weeks a week after i would have fertilized or whatever um, Mm and i had a massive night out and drank copious amounts of alcohol and and we there's an awful lot of guilt put on us then and i i don't terrible that I don't I don't think that's very fair I don't think we need mm. any extra pressure on us Absolutely especially not. if you're struggling to get pregnant so I find that quite difficult and I, and I really don't think that's fair on mums yes the advice is there and the advice is that we don't take any and you know clearly we should stick to that but we, we shouldn't put a huge amount of pressure on ourselves either now, I don't know if that's the advice or the, what you were hoping for me to say but I think that's a fair way of looking at it the regulations, the guidelines are there. No alcohol is, we don't know what, what amount is safe, but don't put any extra pressure on yourself if you did, you know, get drunk or have a glass here or there. Yeah, if you were trying, I suppose, is, yeah, I know what you mean. Exactly. It, yeah. yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think, and as you say, there is like the culture of alcohol in Ireland is is something that could be a whole other podcast in and of itself. I think in general, whether you are a woman or a man, you know, trying to avoid uh, frequent or I suppose a lot of, you know, binge type consumption is is really important and it is a key part of, of public health guidelines anyway. Um, actually, you know what, in men, it's actually more important because, and we're going to talk about fertility, but mm. um, alcohol really can change sperm a lot smoking and alcohol so mm. it's actually more important for the men probably especially if you're struggling to get parent pregnant that they, they they give up alcohol more so than the woman because our eggs are there they're made they're done you know mm. there's nothing you can do about them whereas sperm are produced constantly that's a very a three good point. Month life cycle yeah so if if a man is struggling and there are issues with the sperm such as fragmented dna or things like that then them the man getting healthier will actually make him uh a huge difference to their fertility versus a woman's, mm. which is interesting. Most people that is really interesting. It. Yeah, and that's we'll get on. I learned this year. That's very interesting. I didn't know that. I knew alcohol yeah. affected sperm uh, quality, but I wasn't. I didn't know kind of the more specifics of it. Yeah. And then I suppose something you've recently posted about, um, and something I posted about a little bit too, is vaccination in general. But during pregnancy, I think there's a lot of myths and misinformation and fear about this topic. And I was yeah. wondering if you could tell us like what um, important vaccines are recommended during pregnancy and and why. Yeah, I got isn't the 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 hype around. Uh, vaccine misinformation on, online is just crazy but it's really insane. there's it's it's yeah there's two in pregnant women you need to get two vaccines every time you get pregnant okay so the first is the pertussis or whooping cough vaccine and the second is the flu vaccine mm. so whooping cough or, or pertussis is a really contagious virus that has caused a number of deaths in newborn babies um in recent years they can end up with pneumonia and brain damage and death and and there have been numerous cases lately up in dublin i mean you probably know more this, about this as a public health doctor than i mm. do but it's covered on the medical card now because or it's covered for all pregnant women because of this so um basically we vaccinate babies against whooping cough at two months of age but up from in those first two months of life they're not protected so by giving the vaccine to your the mom in each pregnancy between 16 and 36 weeks it passes the antibodies on to baby to protect them for those first two months the antibodies don't last so you do definitely 100 percent need to get it in every pregnancy it's a question i get asked um quite often on my instagram because some gps do seem to be misinformed about that so mm. first second and third pregnancy between 16 and 36 weeks or whatever number of pregnancy number of pregnancy you're on and that protects baby for the first two months of their life it's provided free of charge by your GP. So there is no charge for that. And there shouldn't be. If you're being charged, you need to tell them that there shouldn't be. Mm. And then secondly, it's the flu vaccine. So if you're pregnant during the winter months, which are September to April, which means everyone would be affected because you can't get away without being pregnant in those months. Yeah. Flu vaccine. Yeah. So the flu vaccine, again, obviously changes every year. Um, oh. Flu increases the risk of complications during pregnancy. So premature labor, smaller babies and stillbirth. Um, when I did my OBS rotation, there were four women women in the ICU um, with with flu. Oh my God! Um, so it's a, oh. yeah, it's a serious illness, um, and you need to get vaccinated. So vaccine, the vaccine, not only protects you but um, protects the baby, and it's a very safe vaccine. It's been given for years and years and years, like 
like a huge amount of years. I'd, I'd be pulling a number out of my head now, but, um, and it reduces the risk of stillbirth by 50%. So, uh, you wow. know, the, the, yeah, the efficacy of the, the vaccine is there. The safety of it is there. Mm. Um, you can technically get it at any stage in pregnancy is my understanding, although I think it yes, says in can. the SPC that comes with it nine weeks. But my understanding is, is any, any stage in pregnancy. Yeah, so my understanding is, you know, it's most important to get it regardless um, and that yes. it's, it's safe throughout. Um, exactly. And if yeah. you're pregnant over two, um, two flu seasons, you need two flu jabs. Yes. Very, very good point. Very good point. Yeah. And I think people don't realize like the passive protection is is I was like no, we're looking yeah. for protection for a moment. The passive protection for baby to be is so important. And that's why yeah, we're absolutely. giving the vaccines or a large proportion of why those two are really, yeah. really important. Um, exactly. yeah. I thought your post on that was brilliant because there is so much like like nutrition vaccination is a topic that is subject to so much uh misinformation and myths and it's, it's very hard to see as a doctor for something that's you know one of the greatest advances of modern medicine like then that's not that's not hyperbole that's that's absolutely a fact and um, so yeah. pertussis whooping cough aka whooping cough and flea two yes, most important yeah. every pregnancy brilliant you Thanks haven't had them already go and get them brilliant yeah. so we'll move on and chat a little bit about fertility now this is a really difficult topic to address and I have been asked about it quite a bit every time I do um, a story question box on my Instagram and say what topics would you guys like there's at least one person who says Brazilian and I'm not working in this area I've obviously done obs and gynae as part of my medical training but I'm not working in it I'm not specializing in it I've never felt comfortable discussing it now I know um, you've shared some great posts on this and raised really great awareness about it, uh, particularly recently. Um, and we won't like, obviously, we can only do so much in a podcast and a podcast doesn't yes. substitute actually seeing a doctor in person. But I thought it would be useful to just maybe discuss some facts that we should all know about fertility and infertility to start off anyway. Yeah, 100%. No, no, more than you, I actually didn't know a lot about this. Like not nothing from my medical training really, other than mm. what kind of IVF and ICSI and all the different options were, which I'd forgotten. And we really don't cover a lot of it in GP either. But I did a fertility week back in September on my Instagram, and I mm. learned so much. I had a number of specialists on, um, who shared experts who shared their, uh, you know, their kind of part to play. So from the laboratory technicians to um, nurses oh, well. and doctors yeah. yeah so it was really really interesting excuse me I've got a tickle in my throat now but um, no so I learned I learned a lot and did an, an awful amount of reading that time about it and so many women shared their stories as well so you know there's a huge amount of information if you're looking for information on infertility on my profile saved in my highlights and my on on some Instagram posts but it, it opened my eyes to the whole thing. I mean, one in seven couples will have problems conceiving. Like that's a huge. A huge oh my gosh. Amount. If you think of your closest friends, you know, and I have two close friends um, who are struggling to get pregnant, like really struggling, really struggling to get pregnant. So out of every 100 couples trying to get pregnant, 80 to 90% of those will get pregnant within the first year of trying. But the rest, so the 10 to 20% may need longer or may need help yeah um so one in seven is a huge number and to to i suppose it's important to define infertility so mm. infertility is the inability to get pregnant after 12 months of trying under the age of 35 or six months of trying over the age of 35 and trying means regular sex so sex every two to three days without any methods of um 
excuse me, contraception. And yeah. one thing that I learned a bit more about recently was, you know, there's primary infertility, which is where you can't get pregnant at all to commence with, and secondary infertility, which is way more common than I realized, which is you've gotten pregnant once and then you assume you're going to get pregnant the second time, but actually you struggle. So, yeah. Um, you know, it's a, a huge topic. I think it's also important to realize that infertility can affect both men and women. So 30% of infertility will be due to female problems, another 30% will be male, and 30 to 40% will be unexplained. So wow. again, that and I think that unexplained must be the most difficult to deal with. Right? Absolutely. Uh, I, you know, and I, we've been blessed, um, you know, with three babies with no issues. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm always aware of talking about pregnancy and how I got pregnant on my my Instagram um, mm. because it, it, it obviously is difficult for people and when I announced my pregnancy I lost 100 followers that day and no doubt it, wow. um, yeah but I understand that like people yeah. don't want to watch and listen like so because I gained a lot of followers obviously when I did the fertility week and yeah you know, yeah they, they I understand do, they find it difficult yeah so yeah. my my advice um with regards to this from a GP, so I'm coming at this right from a GP perspective as well. I'm not a specialist at all, but yeah. from a GP perspective, the, the advice is you chat to your GP if you've been trying for one year before the age of 35 and six months after. But honestly, I would come to us before then because um, mm. we can do really basic bloods like, you know, if your thyroid function was off, that could just, it could just be as simple as that. And by correcting your thyroid function, you know, we, we would aim for thyroid stimulating hormone which is the one that keeps the thyroid levels in the blood normal we would be aiming for that to be less than two so often we'll start patients on a low dose of of l-troxin which is um synthetic thyroid hormone to help and that might be all a patient needs so if you're i, I think my little bit of advice sorry that's your next question isn't it i'm 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 skipping no no you're yeah, you're okay no, but, uh, what i what i tend to say to people is get your bloods done like what harm is it going to do and I see people absolutely you know thinking about getting pregnant next year just wanted to check everything was okay and I'm like great we'll do uh, a rake of bloods just to make sure everything is okay no hormone we don't do hormone blood hormonal bloods right because there's no point unless you have specific symptoms that might be suggestive of a problem yeah. and then I would my advice to patients and to people is to um to you know, be prepared. So look at your menstrual cycles, download, and you talk about uh, the Flow app, is it? Is that Fitter one? Woman, actually. Yeah. It's Fitter yeah, Woman, Fitter sorry. Yeah, yeah it's it. really, really yeah. good app for tracking. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I only, I use my period tracker. I, it's just, that's all it does. But that's yeah. the one that I use and I recommend because that's the only one I have any experience in. Um, but, you know, download an app, keep track of your cycles and look out for signs of ovulation. So increase of like a music or mucus or pain or, you know, things like that. And um, just be prepared. So at least you're doing the best thing you can. Oh, and get on folic acid. Don't forget the yes, folic acid. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's all part of sort of, I suppose, preparedness preconception, isn't it? Like you're, that's what you're absolutely. preparing yourself to do. Yeah, I think yeah. that's really yeah. nice. Um, Brilliant. So I suppose I know it's it's just it's such a vast topic and I know there's there's many different questions people will probably have listening to this, but I thought it was just important to touch on the basics. Um, and as you said, you know, there's elements of infertility that will be explained by female causes, by male causes, but then there's a larger portion that won't be explained. Um, yes. And it's something that I've really noticed in the last probably couple of years. This is probably the age I'm at as well and who I follow and things, but there's a lot more women speaking out about Absolutely. fertility issues, um, about miscarriage, you know, even the Irish Times last weekend ran a huge section in their Saturday paper. Yeah. 
it was really really brilliant I mean it was it was heartbreaking to read but it was it was honestly I think sometimes we underestimate how powerful it can be to read someone else's experience um yeah yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I spoke about mis- miscarriages that week and people shared their yeah. stories and I shared them on mine. And it's uh, life is cruel, but it's just it's so good to know that other people are going through it and to know what can happen. You know, it's um, it's so important, again, for empowering ourselves and, and knowing what life can throw at us. Absolutely. And I would definitely encourage anyone who has extra questions to just go have a look at the post you shared because you went into some um, really nice, like the story highlights obviously there. There's a lot more detail than we can go into on a single podcast episode. And also, if you're concerned, as always, speak to your own doctor, go see them in person. Don't underestimate how powerful that can be to just even, you know, allay your own fears or concerns and answer questions. Absolutely. Yeah. So our next topic, we have two to go. So hopefully the listeners are, are, are hanging in there. Um is, is also I really important. Much. Yeah. <laughs> I do as well. <laughs> we're, we're both clearly Irish. <laughs> um, but the HPV vaccine, so the human papillomavirus vaccine. Now, this is something that is obviously a huge public health topic at the moment. Um, but many listeners might not know a huge amount about it. We've both shared posts on it, which I think is great. And we can't talk about it enough. And Ireland has recently started offering the HPV vaccine to boys as well as girls in the first year of secondary school. So I thought kind of as this episode is kind of largely focused on female health but a little bit about the boys and the men as well it'd be important to touch on this as well so could you tell us a bit about HPV first of all? Yeah so HPV stands for the human papillomavirus which is a group of over 100 viruses that cause a number of as well diseases and cancers in both men and women Mm. so I read a really interesting quote in the Irish Independent I think it was article like if you went down to the local nightclub probably 80% of the people in there will be infected with HPV on any one evening yeah so the majority of us will get it at some stage in our life up to about 80 percent but we will clear it on our own so our own body's defense system will get rid of the hpv virus and it won't give us any issues but if we uh contract it we can then pass it on so it's spread by skin to skin contact so usually from sexual activity and not just uh you know vagina penis sex but vagina mouth penis mouth penis anus you know any kind of any um, mode yeah any mode yeah will will pass will pass hpv and that's the reason it's so important and that's the reason it's so important to males as well so it causes basically all the, almost all of cervical cancers i think it's 98 percent mm. of cervical cancers 90 percent of vulval cancers 80 percent of vaginal cancers 90% of HPV related anal cancers, so anal cancers, and 90% of genital warts, as well as cancers of the head and neck, penis yeah. and anus. So it's, you know, huge burden of disease. A huge, absolutely, absolutely massive. And, and we have a vaccine against yeah. it. So we have yeah. a vaccine against cancer. I mean, again, like, I know, the, exactly. The, you know, vaccine's been one of the most amazing, you know, things. Like I just, it, it, I can't fathom how people don't think that this is the most amazing thing ever. Absolutely. And I suppose as well for people to just be aware, as we've both said in our posts, the reason why the, we're giving it at the age we are as part of a, um, a primary prevention program is because, you know, you're, you're aiming to give the vaccine before children become, sorry, adolescents become sexually active because that's when you're most likely to be getting HPV. It's the most common mode of transmission. Um, you know, so by giving it early on, it means that you've got the immunity built up 
over the years before you become sexually active. And that's why it's it's part of the program in the first year of secondary school. It's the evidence telling us that, uh, you know, that's when it's most effective and when people will have the most effective immune response as well, because they're yes. probably not going to have HPV vaccine, have HPV infection, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. But interestingly, you can give it, you know, licensed up to the age of. Is it 27, I think, is the, the licensing age and, and they say men. Of sex with men get it up to the age of 45. So actually, even if you've been exposed and you know that you've had yes. HPV, they you should still, if you can afford to get it, you should still get it, you know. And even if you, they give it in um, the STI clinics as well. To they do. Who's infected with it to decrease the disease burden, you know. So it's, mm. it's yes, we're, we're giving it at the earlier stage and that's the best time to give it. But if you're in your 20s, you know, and you missed out on it, you know, it's great now because actually we're seeing, so I'm doing, um, you know, smears obviously on 25 year olds and they've actually been vaccinated. But if in yeah. case you missed it, it's still worth considering getting if you can afford to pay for it because it obviously isn't cheap. It will still give you some protection. Absolutely. And now that, so we, in case listeners weren't aware previously, we had um, a vaccine that protected against a lower number of HPV, yes. high risk HPV types, and now it protects against nine of those, nine, the nine most so common nine types. types. Yeah, which is people, that's nine out of 10 cervical cancers. Yeah, and like, and yeah. people give out a lot about our health system, but I think it really is important to recognize that like, we really are taking the lead on this. You know, it really is, as you said, it's a vaccine that can prevent cancer. You know, it's it's just yeah. so important. And there's been a huge amount of- so yeah exactly there's been so much public health advocacy for it which has thankfully improved um our vaccine vaccine uptake rates for it they went uh, they had a, a drastic drop uh, i think it was 2015 2016 and now it's back yeah, up at about 70 percent yeah, yeah campaigns and things um which we won't go into today but it is really important yeah. it's great to see that there's been such an improvement um and then I suppose we've kind of already answered this, but I suppose the reason that we're giving it to boys is because I suppose the burden of disease affects both genders and also yeah. we're improving the risk of, we're lowering the risk of transmission by vaccinating both, basically. Yeah, so you're increasing your herd immunity as well, exactly. right? So by giving it to men and boys and girls, um, the chances of it being passed on are, are negligible. So like imagine, you know, and I suppose the thing is as well, like globally, I think, 85% of anal cancers are attributable to HPV infections. Oh and my gosh. Been a, uh, yeah, and then in Ireland as well, there's there's been a 20% increase in the incidence of head and neck cancers. And I think 50% mm. of these are attributable HPV. to HPV. Yeah, so um, it's a huge disease. And yeah. if we could vaccinate everyone, imagine if these people that are coming up now that are vaccinated didn't have to deal with any HPV-related cancers. I mean... It's just huge. Huge. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hopefully we've made the case, <laughs> but yeah. it is it's, it's such an important topic. Um, and not, the last... we'll just keep on harping on about it. Yeah, on exactly. <laughs> we'll be doing another post early 2020. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the last topic we're going to chat about, Laura, is kind of going towards uh, the older age of whim of a woman's life. But we're going to touch on menopause, yeah. which is something that um, comes up quite a bit on social media and fairness as well because there is quite a broad demographic that use it and it can be yes. a bit of a tap like obviously I am 28 so I have not had personal experience of this but I do think like the menstrual cycle and fertility it is a bit of a taboo topic for women but it is something we're all going to go through um, and I just wanted to ask some very basic questions um, just again to focus on those basics and sort of improve people's awareness of of these topics so what is menopause? 
So I think that's a really good question to start with because I suppose people talk about menopause um, and they're going through the menopause, but actually they're going through the perimenopause, which is the time around the menopause. Mm-hmm. Menopause is the time when our period stops. It's the end of our menstrual cycle. So a woman is said to have reached menopause once she hasn't had a period uh, for one year. So it's, okay. it, it is actually a specific moment in time. And the symptoms that we deal with are really the perimenopause time. So the time uh, from basically when our estrogen levels start to dip and our our, our periods start to fluctuate and the symptoms start, that's the per- perimenopause up until the menopause, which is one year after the end of our periods. And then you're technically post-menopausal after that. Okay. Yeah, I think that's so important. You're so right. Um, it's when we're going, when people are going, women are going through the symptoms that they think it's that, but like, yeah, be having the, yeah. the difference in your head is really important. Yeah, and what are, just to understand it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what are the most common symptoms that women might experience? So again, it's different for everyone. Some people will have loads of symptoms. Some people won't. There's a lot of anecdotal stuff that says if your mum you know, suffered really badly, you're going to suffer mm. really badly. But actually, there's no evidence behind that at all. Okay. Um, though anecdotally, we definitely do find it is the case. But the main menopause symptoms, I mean, obviously, if we look at signs as well, so irregular periods would be the um, one of the biggest things. And then things like hot flushes or chills, night sweats, um, sleep problems, mood changes. Some people find they gain weight because they're... Um, their metabolism um, will slow down. down. Yeah, Yeah, so they'll get thinning hair and dull skin. This is all due to the lack of estrogen. And vaginal dryness. So vaginal symptoms are actually one of the um, most common symptoms of menopause that I would deal with in GP. Most people, you know, only a few people really suffered. I don't know what the stats are on it now, but with the hot flushes, Mm. many will deal with it themselves and won't find them too bad. But for a certain number of people, they will be particularly bad. But vaginal dryness is really uh, one of the most irritating problems that all the tissues down in your vagina and vulva and even your bladder and your urethra are so estrogen sensitive that that's where we suffer a lot. Wow. Okay. And I think like that, that's not going to be something women are going to feel that comfortable talking about. No, which is really sad because it's so, I mean, it's not so common. It It, it, it is 100% going to happen to everyone. Vaginal yes. atrophy, you know, yeah. atrophic vaginas, atrophic vaginitis. It is 100% when the estrogen is gone, this will affect you. You need to talk about it. Yeah, I think that's so important. Did you mention sleep there? I feel I think you did. I just yes, of, I did. Yeah, yeah, sleep yeah. Problems yeah. as well, yeah, with the hormonal yeah. changes and mood changes as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, again, I've just anecdotally, um, family or friends, but I have heard mm. uh, a lot about sleep disturbance and less so due to things like hot flushes, but just, you know, having real difficulty um, yeah. with sleep yeah. all of a sudden, you know, which is which is really challenging. And as we know, sleep is fundamental to physical and mental health uh, in, in so many ways. But, and like, you know, it just it's to kind of work locally we're we're not great crack if we haven't had a good night's sleep so it's my life <laughs> yeah <laughs> I know it really is it really is a foundation um and is there anything that women can do or use or be prescribed to help with symptoms I'm sure people would have heard um of different treatments but also maybe have googled a lot of different things as well um and I just love you to dive into that a little bit yeah, so I suppose from a GP perspective, the most important thing that we can do is offer someone HRT, yeah. um, hormone replacement therapy. So menopause is, um, 
you know, when your estrogen levels basically start decreasing to, to zero, okay? And estrogen is what keeps everything good for us, is what gives us cardioprotective effects, it, it protects our bones, and it the lack of estrogen causes all these symptoms. So hormone replacement therapy is providing someone with that estrogen that they are now missing. And we also give them progesterone, depending on whether they have a womb or not. Um, because basically, if you give someone estrogen all the time, that there's a risk of endometrial um, or womb cancer. So you have to give progesterone to, to balance it. So it's been a really touchy topic over the past few years, and it definitely went out of favor for a while because of the women's initiative research that came out. But that's been proven to be not really that true. And really, I, I just did a course the week before last on the menopause. You know, HRT is the gold standard, and as GPs, we've been afraid to prescribe it, and we probably should, particularly if someone is suffering from physical symptoms such as hot flushes or night sweats, and that they're they're at a stage where they're particularly difficult that they can't deal with them at all. Mm. Um, you know, and so if if you are suffering with these, I think you need to go and visit your GP and chat through your options, and and you know. There are risks inherent in, in HRT. There are risks associated with anything we do. So it's important to go and have a proper discussion about those. Um, I mentioned the vaginal dryness, which can lead to painful sex for a lot of women as they're going through the menopause or perimenopause. And we actually have vaginal estrogen, which is kind of localized HRT, which will deal with these symptoms with excellent, I mean, excellent effect. It's a, a suppository that they insert into the vagina. Um, and really every woman going through this should be on it. Um, mm. that, that's the guidance. It, it works really well. Um, we can also use low-dose antidepressants to help with some of the symptoms with the sleep problems and uh, mood changes. And it's really important that women be on uh, bone protection as well because our estrogen protects us against osteoporosis. So uh, calcium and vitamin D would be so important. important once you hit men menopause. Yeah. And then assessing to see whether you would be at an increased risk of bone fractures and then you, you may need further treatment and mm. um, then i i suppose there's a load of online information about other supplements that work like black cohash and um drawing a complete blank now but th there's no medical or scientific research that they work in any way and in fact they might be dangerous they can cause liver toxicity and things like that so mm. um you know, I, I would never recommend them. I don't really know a huge amount about them. And the advice that I give to patients is, you know, just steer clear of things like that. Um, try medical treatment if needs, if you feel you need it. Um, yeah. And, and we have some fantastic options. So so why not? And from a lifestyle perspective, I guess it really comes back to what we should be doing throughout our lives, you know, which is a balanced, healthy diet. Absolutely, um, yeah. A mixture yeah. of um, aerobic and weight-bearing exercise and yes. then obviously sleep where possible. Um, sleep, where po yeah, yeah, sleep and, and that's that's with everything in life, right? So, yeah. yeah a, a healthy, balanced diet. You know, there's the people swear by acupuncture and Reiki and, you know, yoga, weight-based trainings and you know, mm. cardiovascular exercise are important then for bone health, obviously, as well. Yeah, so they're hugely important too. Definitely. As we as we said before we recorded, like the basics are so important, but they're so hard to get really communicated and nailed in. But that's what we yeah. are trying to do our best with. Um, yes. Laura, thank you so much for um, spending all this time on my podcast, uh, giving no us all of your knowledge and wisdom. Divide it into like three. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could finish by asking uh, or sorry, by asking you 
I was wondering if we could finish by asking you to share one tip for our listeners to bring a bit of Irish balance into their lives. It's something that I ask every guest at the end of my interviews. I feel like I'm the worst person to ask this on <laughs> because my life is so crazy at the minute. Um, and sometimes, and we talked about a love-hate relationship with Instagram, sometimes mm. I feel like I don't have any balance in my life. I'm working full-time with two kids, a third on the way. I basically pretty much spend all my evenings on Instagram or my website. Um, so to keep I hear you. Sane, I'm currently the same. <laughs> I, yeah. So to keep me sane or I suppose balanced, if you want to put it like that, for me, it's all about multitasking. Is that balance? I don't know. Deciding what's important for you and working around that. So for me, my kids and my family are extremely, obviously, the most important thing in my life. But yeah. my work is really important as well. And I'm finishing the scheme soon. So it's important for me to build my Instagram to so that I have a career to step into when I finish. So I'm trying my best to balance um, the best of those. So I, when I'm with my kids and my family, I concentrate on them. Yeah. You know, I don't get much time with my kids because I work full time. So, you know, my hour in the morning and my hour in the evening, I make the most of that. And then I, you know, when I'm finished, I sit down on the couch and I do what I need to do. And I, and I work hard the rest of the time to allow myself uh, the time with my kids. So I don't know if that's a great answer or not, Kira, but that's. I think that I is a great answer. No, I love that. I've had for me. Yeah. I've had such a range of answers and um, my last guest said that she when she's having a really crap day sometimes she just puts on some music and turns off her phone and dances around her room you know so it, it's Isn't been so great? varied. I wish I did stuff like that or I know I you going to the gym and I'm like god I really should get out and do some exercise but yeah you know what though I- I really like your answer because I suppose the thing is, I think a lot of people mistake what I mean when I when I call the blog the Irish Balance. It really was kind of a name that was decided between myself and my then boyfriend that I was like, what do you think of this? And he was like, yeah, it sounds good. And I was like, oh, sure, I'll go for it and see. And suddenly, yeah. you know, there's 11,000 people following the handle and I'm trying to explain what it means. And it was born out of being a doctor who felt she didn't have uh, any balance or was not prioritizing the right things to bring balance into her life and that's okay, kind of so the irony that's... of my name you know that I'm yeah, trying I'm yeah. always trying to find it and I think sometimes it's the journey in finding it that's just more fun than actually having it itself yeah so you know true. yeah 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 okay because well, you can't feel too bad <laughs> yeah like my, my kind of theory on it is you can't you can't know what balance is until you've lived life at either extreme right so 100%. Yeah. If your happy medium is, you know, having a kind of each spectrum within your day, you know, it's a really busy day, but then you can chill, you can have a, like an hour chilling out, you know, spending time with your family or your friends in the evening, you know, and then doing a bit again, working a little bit, you know, if that works, that's what I think is important, you know, kind of having yeah. that. It's yeah. a spectrum. Look, I feel my back. life is balanced at the minute, even though it's absolutely insanely busy and I don't know how I'm doing it all. It, it is balanced to a certain degree. You have, I, I suppose, di- disagreed with me on my <laughs> yeah. answer when I was telling him this last night. He really? was like, that's not balance. I'm like, but it is. But it's see, working. that's it. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's an, you know, well, I think balance is what, balance for the individual is so different to what we idealize balance to be. You yes, know what I mean? 100%. Like, so it's definitely not the ideal, you know, balance picture, but it, it it's what's working for me at the moment. Yeah, exactly. And once you're, you know, if, if you're happy within it and you're able to feel present in the moments that you're present in, I think that's I think that's what's really important. I'm um, sorry, I totally yeah. digressed your answer, but I really no loved your answer. It's kind of how my <laughs> life you. is as well, except minus the children. So I I honestly bow down to you. But still, no, yeah, like they're yeah, yeah, 
it's relative yeah thank you so well, much exactly. for um thank you so much for being my guest Laura. it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on i'd love if you could let the listeners know where to find you on social media and flag anything on your page or any highlights that you haven't mentioned already that you'd like to let people know about i know you're running a, a 12 days at the moment uh, about yes. christmas 12 days of Dr. Laura I gave my followers the options as to what they would like it to be on so pregnancy, skin care um, kids health or medications or other mm-hmm. and so um, skin care actually were, were uh, one out so I'm doing 12 days of Dr. Laura and I'm doing uh, basic tips on well, tips on, on how to get glowing skin, which sounds okay. so banal, but it's actually really interesting. We're starting from the very basics. So that's on my page at the minute. I spend most of my time on Instagram at Dr. Laura GP. Um, I've also recently set up my own website, um, DrLauraGP.com, and I, I'm doing kind of blog posts there, but that's only starting out. And I'm selling some of my favorite skincare products. So one of my favorite brands is SkinCeuticals. I think they're fantastic for actually changing your skin at a cellular level they're full of active so that's what I've been spending most of my time on lately but if you want to follow along please do there's loads saved in um my story highlights and grid posts I talk a lot about women's health um skin dermatology so acne psoriasis eczema those kind of things as well as the basics of getting glowing skin um, and skincare products to use and then a lot of kids stuff as well so a lot of just simple things like managing fevers or dealing with diarrheas on the list to do soon and, and things like that. Brilliant. And I can honestly vouch, like, it's why I wanted to have you on. It's, it's such a breath of fresh air. And it's great as well to connect with another Irish doctor who is putting out really positive evidence-based, you know, practical information yeah. online. I feel like there's been a dearth of us for so long and it's brilliant to see someone Yeah, it's because um, I think you've it. been doing it for a lot longer than I have. So it's, it's great. And, and thank you so much for having me. I've, my first podcast I've yeah done. won't be able to stop you now <laughs> <laughs> I have two more lined up but uh, oh, great. It's interesting to see yeah fantastic yeah. fantastic well I hope everyone enjoyed the episode guys thank you for listening and um, I'll catch up with you on the next episode do of course let myself and Laura know what you thought of the episode you can find me as always at the Irish balance on Instagram and um, you can send us a DM you can drop an email or leave a comment on this podcast we'd love to hear from you and any thoughts or questions that you had based on the episode Thanks for listening. Bye.